Our first movie tells the story of a friendship behind prison walls that spans more than 20 years. Welcome to episode 6 of Middle Brow Madness, a podcast of cinematic hubris, or I swear I'll get it right one of these days. Yeah, I think that's what it is. It's, it's, you've either, you said both that and podcast hubris, so I'm not sure which one you want to live with. Um, because it's an exercise in podcast hubris as well, because I think that's what episode 0 was, an exercise in podcast hubris. I want to be, I want to be consistent, Michelle. Uh, well, you're already fucked up, because you, the first like three episodes, you've said different things, so you can't be consistent. We've already, we've passed that bridge that's not how the expression goes we've crossed that bridge now we're here uh we burned that bridge and now what's up gamers i'm michelle larf i'm Derek uh, and today we're talking about movies like them <laughs> love them what do we think of them <laughs> i'm sorry that made me laugh okay. um, i'm glad i could do that for you Derek. oh man yeah the gimmick of the pod if michelle's uh explanation didn't uh already make that clear is that we watch movies on this show. Uh, specifically, we watch movies on the IMDb Top 250 uh, Films of All Time list. We add six of our wild cards, and uh, we make a big old bracket out of it. And through the tried, tested, and true method of single elimination, we will eventually, after maybe three-ish years, get to the best movie of this particular list. And according to IMDb, the greatest movie of all time, Asterisk. Unless we end up choosing one of the movies we added in, in which case, all bets are off. Man, wouldn't that be super anticlimactic, is that we do this whole thing about the internet movie database, and then it ends up that Boogie Nights is the best movie of all <laughs> so time? So we're like, hey, guess what? We really like Boogie Nights, so fuck the IMDb. Oh, man. But Boogie Nights is not- uh, Boogie Nights should be on the 250. Sorry, it should be on the 250. IMDb. Boogie Nights is a fucking good movie. Shout out to Ross, who was equally- uh, Ross Burks, who was equally as aghast that Boogie Nights was not on this list as we were when we first put this- uh, but we got four very different movies today. Yeah, and four movies that range from pretty good to bonafide masterpiece. Y- yeah, I think I would agree with that. And also, I think it's really cool, four movies from different countries. You're right. Four, a little trip around the world with uh, Middlebrow Madness. So our first match, well, our matchups are The Hunt versus The General and Spirited Away versus A Wednesday. So let's get right to it. Uh, representing Denmark today, uh, The Hunt. Uh, the 102 seed in our tournament, so just just outside the top 100, released in 2012, directed by Thomas Vinterberg, uh, nominated for the Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film, uh, winner of the Best Actor Prize at the Cannes Film Festival for Mads Mikkelsen, and uh, pretty good, uh, pretty decently, uh, a modest hit, uh, $3.5 million budget, and $18.3 million box office, if my uh, adjustments and uh, uh, price uh, dollar conversions are correct. And it's Definitely going... more money than I would expect for a movie of this subject. <sighs> the, 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 there's something in the water in Europe, and I'm not sure what it is, but <laughs> uh, but it's going up against The General. This is the second episode that we contend with one Buster Keaton. Uh, this was released in 1926. It was directed by Mr. Keaton and uh, Clyde Bruckman. And uh, if, again, if my calculations are correct, uh, it was uh, was made for $10.7 million 
or the equivalent thereof in the 20s, and made $14.3 million at the box office, and uh, is part of the, uh, as coined in the last episode, Buster Keaton God Run in the 1920s. So The Hunt, Michelle. The Hunt. This is a film, I remember when this came out in 2012, everyone was talking about it, and everyone was like, you really need to see The Hunt. I didn't get around to it, so I watched it, I think it was yesterday. This is a rough movie. It is really squirm inducing. <laughs> this is so I, like I said it's a movie that made 18.3 million dollars and it's about a kindergarten teacher being falsely accused of child molestation and the entire town basically turning on him. Yeah, in frightening ways. Yes. Not just like your garden variety shunning. Shit happens. The fact that Thomas Venterberg, who you might know as the director of The Celebration or Festen, uh, which was one of the, the first, first Dogma film, right? The first Dogma film, uh, 98, I believe, um, which is a great movie. Um, this kind of plays like the uh, the inverse of it. It's like the other side of that coin. It's still in that same uh, wheelhouse and mood, and t- but plays it a bit differently. And I think the thing that makes the film beyond the... Um, uh, this, this film almost looks impossibly idyllic and uh, it's lit just so. It's very tasteful. But what makes it Mads goddamn motherfucking Mickles because he looks like such a heel you know him as Le Chiffre you know him as Hannibal of course this dude isn't doing bad shit but he's playing he's playing the he's playing the the, the figurative wrong guy in this film he's he's the wrong man yeah it's it's such a tightrope he has to watch because on the one hand he is still kind of imposing and weird looking and kind of creepy like just it's just Mads Mickelson is inherently a little bit creepy looking and it's those, it's think, those Danish cheekbones, man. And I think the reason, um, just to like cut right to it, the reason this movie works for me um, is because you at once feel sorry for him and you feel so frustrated that, that you know what's happening to him isn't the truth and you know he's being falsely accused. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you really understand what the town feels. Yeah. Like I, I uh, told you before we started that uh, Thomas Bo Larson, who plays Theo, which is Lucas's best friend. Who, also in Fessen. His um daughter is who uh yes, originally Clara. makes the almost accusation. It's not quite ne- it's very similar to the satanic panic of the eighties, which is uh for those who don't know, in America there is a whole thing in the eighties where satanic ritual abuse was this thing that everyone thought was happening everywhere. And it was these Satanists across the country, usually school teachers, who were said to have molested and like seriously abused like so many children and it turns out almost all of it was mass hysteria and panic and none of it actually happened because if you ask the right leading questions to a kid because they want to like make you happy because they want to answer your questions they will basically tell you whatever you want and then they'll falsely remember things that didn't actually happen there's actually a really good documentary called capturing the freedmen's um oh yeah i heard of that it's a very good documentary that's actually um pretty Um, the director ended up saying that he believes that the people involved didn't do the thing. Although I think the movie admirably is in the middle where it's saying some of the stuff's clearly not true, but some of the stuff is really weird. And it seems like there might be something here anyways, but this movie is by having such a strong character in Theo, by having such a strong character in Nadja, who's Lucas's girlfriend or in all these other characters, it makes it so that you say, Hey, I have the information to know that what's happening is incorrect and that they're he's being wrongly accused but i don't know if i'd be able to have that kind of rationality if it was for example my daughter who was the one who theoretically was abused in this way sure like just going back to like that 
that basically interrogation sequence at the beginning when they're first talking to Clara about what what in giant quotation marks might have happened. It it is the first taste in the film. Your heart sinks just immediately and stays there for an hour and a half. Yeah. And it's so wonderfully controlled in that there's especially one thing I thought was really clever and works so well is that it takes a very like obviously um Mads Mikkelsen is denying it but he never says the words I didn't do anything he never says those words until the film's almost over and I think that represents the restraint the movie has in really feeling out how these people would react to it and how how his frustration builds over the movie and how the audience's frustration builds and the fact that you see that interview with Clara and uh the question she's being asked, you can see why both the the adults in that room are asking those questions. And they almost, maybe to them, they seem like the right questions to be asking. But the audience, you know that they're getting the wrong person. And it's such a, like, it's such a weird tone and such a weird thing to sustain to make it somehow not just rage-inducing, but also incredibly tragic. It's very tragic. And talking about Mads Mikkelsen and him never, like, outright denying it, it's like everything about, everything about... His character's character is in that, and that's just not just good, uh, not a good, not just good, a good performance from Mads Mikkelsen, but great writing and great like mise en scène. Because there aren't like outbursts in this film, because even though Mads Mikkelsen is like shunned from everywhere in town in every possible way, he like attempts to go on and lead his life. Yeah, there's a the most like skin crawling, like nerve wracking scene is when he goes to the church on Christmas Eve. Yeah. And yeah. he's already like covered in blood, basically, because he just got the shit kicked out of him at the when he tried to go grocery shopping. Yeah, yeah, he fucking headbutts a cat who like socks. Yeah, and like he his like there's like blood in his nose. There's like a big gash in his forehead, and he walks in with a limp to church. And then while the children's choir, who includes uh, Clara, is singing, he looks back at his old best friend. And just, like, stares him down. Eventually, there's a confrontation. And it is the most squirmy, like, uncomfortable... I think the way I described it in the chat was, it's like a cringe comedy, but there's never a punchline. It's never funny. (laughs) It's always, like, the lead-up where you're like, oh, God, I don't want to, like, keep looking because I'm so uncomfortable. There's so many things that I just want to solve, and I can't solve them because no one's acting the way that I want them to act, basically. Right before that happens, when he, like, tries to clear his throat and starts kind of warbling with the hymn <laughs> off-key, oh, it's, it's like, so Jesus amazing. Christ. And and here's the thing. As chilling and, well, as squirm-inducing as all that is, the last five minutes of the movie, which I won't spoil, are chilling because it's so plausible that that shit could happen. Yeah. It's like, I mean, I'm not going to spoil it. It's... It's a great ending. I, you shouldn't have it spoiled. You shouldn't read the synopsis or anything before you watch it. Just go in and fresh, because that ending is something else. It's really weird for me that Thomas Vinterberg did uh, Festin, was basically anonymous for a decade, and then just kind of went with, oh, here's a drama I did with Mads Mikkelsen. It's probably one of the best films of the decade. <laughs> yeah. It's like you can't call that kind of, It's It's, like you said, it's control. It's, it's... It's a very precise film. And that makes it sound like it's like this this weird technical exercise. But no, this is very human. This is operating on a very human level. It's shot just so to look like an idyll. And the idea is that idyls can be poisoned by basically hearsay and hysteria. Yeah. And hysteria that 
it it's, its conclusion is illogical and ridiculous, and not ridiculous, but it's illogical and like chilling and evil. But its beginning just makes sense, and there's almost it's almost hard to argue with how you even get there because there's a point early there's a point early on where um the uh the main teacher I guess of the kindergarten um says to Mads like I bl- I believe the the children. So that's why, like, I don't believe you. Like, don't talk to me. I believe the children. Which, like, how do you argue with that? How do you say, no, the children are wrong. Yeah, They're you can't, lying. You can't be the guy who says, yo, kids lie. Yeah. <laughs> you can't be the guy who says, like, because the reason that Theo, uh, his Lucas's best friend, doesn't believe Lucas is because, like, my daughter doesn't lie. She doesn't lie. And, like, every parent says that and every parent thinks that. And it's so eerily plausible and uncomfortable. Yeah, for beat to beat, you can follow the logic to it. But when you, like, take the movie on a macro level, it's guessed. And I think that's why it, it works. Because it's never, it's never hysterical. It never takes steps that don't make sense. And it's just, it is one of the most uncomfortable movies I've ever watched. Yeah, I would. Yeah, it's it's up there, definitely. So The General, then. <laughs> uh, the General is a comedy about <laughs> um, a Confederate soldier. Or not Confederate soldier, I guess. Confederate person who wants to be a soldier sure who uh does some shit on a train to put it lightly who does some shit on a train yes it's basically like an hour-long train chase yes this uh has been cited by a bunch of people as like the first large-scale action movie and yeah i mean there's been there's been like larger scale films with like set pieces and like uh depth of mise-en-scene that goes on for for days and days and days but just on a like on a pure like action beat level this is like this might be ground zero. And yeah. I mean, like, the closest we were... thing you could say is maybe like Griffith's Birth of a Nation. But even then, the scenes where there's action are anonymous and they feel like very impersonal. Whereas this is, it's in the diehard mode almost where there's one guy who's trying to solve a problem. Yes. And that guy is Buster Keaton, who we've already spoken about in, in glowing terms in the previous episode. But it um, should be said, this movie is even more death-defying. Than the, pre- the fact that he didn't get run over by a fucking train is shocking to me here's the thing that's fucked up i acknowledge um the general as being a great movie but i still preferred sherlock jr because sherlock jr was like all killer no filler and this was 20 minutes longer and took away from the thing that keaton does best which is stunts i agree i think this movie is the weaker film and i think that it's because that stuff in the middle just doesn't work there's a the uh what do you call it romantic subplot of this is a lot more uh foregrounded and doesn't work it just doesn't work at all no it's not like we said before this is not keaton's strong suit like like doing like death defying shit jumping from train to train clearing uh, clearing train tracks without getting run over cannons are involved like you know the shot of this film is like a train going bye-bye into a river yeah it's... Uh, and then the second, the second shot, the one actually my one of my favorite bits in the movie is um, when he's riding on front of the train and he like has a, a log in his hand yeah, yeah. and he like literally throws it to get the other log out of the way of the train. Yeah, he spears it, and it's like a the fact that he remains stone faced the entire time and doesn't look like he's terrified is astounding. Yeah, because what if he missed? <laughs> if he misses, then f- fuck him. I guess he's dead. Like. Uh, Maybe not like he'd really be seriously, seriously hurt if he messed up that stunt. Yes, and at the it very just works at at the very least. Even if he gets out of the way, he still derails a whole goddamn train. Yeah, which is not generally a good thing you want to do. That's stuff that you want to avoid. Um, I think I, I think those gags work really well when they're happening. Oh yeah, the 
issue is well there's two there's a big um elephant in the room which is that this is a movie where the confederates are the heroes sure and the the happy the, ending is that our hero becomes a general in the confederate army uh so michelle uh what i mean i know what i think but what do americans generally think about the confederates uh, are you asking seriously or are you asking facetiously i'm asking you facetiously um us us yankees don't like them very much although <laughs> the southerners they're not they're not so quick to judge i should say um oh, the the Trump fans of the world maybe like your conf- an, uh, Confederate flag every once in a while or all the time, and they uh, think the South will rise again. Oh, man. See, and, and the reason that it's like, I that's almost because it, it's not really a there's there's no political point the film is making. No. It's just the fact that it is a Confederate as the hero. But the fact that kind of upsets me more is that there's so many shots that are clearly stolen from Birth of a Nation. Right. Or clearly influenced by Birth of a Nation, the uh, D.W. Griffith film, obviously. That which film is that is... film. The reason that the KKK exists now uh, is so much part of the DNA of this film that it's really hard to separate the two. Yeah, um, uh, Griffith was a technically gifted filmmaker with some very dubious politics. <laughs> yes, he's he's a filmmaker who made one of the most racist films ever made, but also oh, yeah. then immediately afterwards made a movie called Intolerance, Intolerance that didn't address the fact that racial intolerance existed. He's a fucking weirdo. Oh, man. D.W. Griffith. Obviously, a lot of films owe their DNA to Griffith. Like, he was one of the first editors. Like, he was one of the first people that actually did editing proper, didn't just do um, linear, straightforward editing. Like he's cut away to things. He had the iris edits. He had like all these different things going on. I don't need to tell everyone in the world why D.W. Griffith is important, but this film's so close to it and so mirrors it that it makes it not as fun to watch as it should be. It feels like. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you can try to like, you you can try to, uh, talk about things kind of independently of each other, but nothing really exists in a vacuum. And sometimes like we were like in like early on, I mean, we were do when we did uh, L.A. Confidential. It's like the shine comes off of stuff sometimes when the people involved get pinned for stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. And that, so I think we've ahead. been pretty clear about the fact that we're that's something we've accepted. We're not trying to look at these films, quote unquote, objectively. objectively. I don't think there is an objective viewpoint. Obviously, we're trying to look at them with the viewpoint we have, and the viewpoint we have knows that D.W. Griffith was a piece of shit, and the general shares a lot of blood with that. Uh, yeah. So I'm just running the numbers here. Uh, Birth of a Nation is 1915, and this is 1926. Mm-hmm. So it's still like within an earshot. You know, this is a relatively recent film. Like, like Birth of a Nation is still a relatively recent development in film his in film history when the general comes out. So this yeah. is not like, oh, we're taking our cues from this. You know, it's not like it's not like uh, uh, Verhoeven plundering Triumph of the Will for parts. You know. Yes. Yes. And at least Verhoeven had the common sense to like criticize those parts. Yes. At like. One of my favorite things, this is a bit of a tangent, but one of my favorite things about, you know, I fancy myself a film critic. Mm -hmm. And one of my favorite things is when Starship Troopers came in 97, people thought it was a fascist film. Like people who Mm -hmm. ostensibly are in the same line of work that I want to be in, presumably intelligent human beings with uh, faculties for like deductive reasoning and like who know what like satire is, um, just were fooled or didn't know any better. Yeah. And it's not a case of like, I will go to bat for Showgirls as a satire, but that one, I can see why people misread it. Mm. Fucking Starship Troopers is so blatantly It's so satirical. clear. It's clearly mocking everything that, that the society in it stands for. From the jump, the literal first scene is propaganda. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. It's... Uh, anyway, I mean, Starship Troopers is a masterpiece. You don't need me telling you. That. Yeah, everyone watch fucking watch Starship Troopers. It's wonderful. Great movie. Don't so, watch the other sequels because they're never. Oh, uh, man. I, you know what? The sequels uh, are made by people who thought that Starship Troopers was serious. Yeah. Uh, one of the uh, as yet unrecorded episodes of Stuck in the Mill with you is me subjecting one to uh, Starship Troopers 3 Marauder because it has a 50% rating on it. Oh, God. Is uh, Busey <laughs> still in that one? Uh, I don't know if Busey's still in that one, but I think Van Dien's in Good for him. <laughs> so how are we doing for time um i think it's time for us to figure out which of these movies is moving on uh, i think I, I think from the tenor of our discussion it sounds like it's gonna be the hunt it feels like it should be the hunt like on paper i feel like it should be the general but no i think i agree i think the hunt's the better film yeah no i agree i think the hunt um doesn't have those dry spots the general does um i think that the hunt knows more what it's trying to say and expresses that better the general it can't be argued there's some incredible things in that film 100 percent worth watching obviously um but i just don't think it's a cl- if any if any buster keaton film is going to move forward it'd be sherlock jr and that's yeah. not moving forward so uh man yeah it lost to three idiots go back and listen to episode five for that one so um, yeah the hunt yeah yeah, General had a lot of uh, actual, like, you no know, action stunt work, but there was a lot of emotional stunt work in the hunt, if you will. <laughs> okay. Um, um, cool. So then the question so who's is... So who's that going to face in the next round? Yeah, uh, it's going to be either Spirited Away um, by uh, Miyazaki, as everyone knows from Studio Ghibli. Yes. Or A Wednesday, which I'd never heard of before this, uh, by I... Niraj Pandey, uh, yep. a 2008 Indian thriller film. Yeah, uh, some some further stats on our competitors. Spirited away at uh, twenty seven, so a very 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 high and seed also, in this tournament. But I think I mentioned I th- I was looking up potentially the most acclaimed animated film of all time. I would be willing to say yes because it's. Uh, uh, let me just look at some. Here's just reading from Wikipedia. Um, it made more money than Titanic at, uh, in Japan, yep. won the Academy Award for Best uh, Animated Feature, yep. um, won the Golden Bear, it uh, yep. tied with Bloody Sunday. It is in the top 10 of the British Film Institute's top 50 films for children under the age of 14. 2016, um, it was voted the fourth best film of the 21st century. It was also named the second best film of the 21st century by the New York Times. It is, people like this movie, I think I could say. It's a good ass movie. And, uh, as for a Wednesday, it has, it, it's the 230 seed, so a little lower in the bracket. Um, won the uh, won the best debut film uh, at the 56 National Film Awards or the Indian Oscars, and uh, pretty decently sized hit, not to the level of a Spirited Away, uh, 3.3 box a million dollar box office on a 1.4 million dollar budget, and. Um, Shall we talk about, sh- shall we laud A Spirited Away even more than it already has by seemingly everybody on the face of the earth? I think let's start with A Wednesday because that way we can kind of, I don't want to say get it out of the way, but we can have, I have a feeling Spirited Away is going to move on so we can have whatever time we need for A Wednesday. And if we don't have time for Spirited Away, the full discussion, we can always put that off till next round. So okay. A Wednesday, uh, explanation point, that's how it's uh, yeah. stylized, is a thriller film about a... Uh, police chief or police commissioner rather who is recounting uh, his most memorable case in his whole career and it's a case where one day a man claims to have planted bombs throughout uh the city of mumbai and that if he doesn't if the commissioner doesn't do what he wants then he will blow them up is a short version of it that's basically it you had pointed out that this movie is basically die hard three yes and it, it is kind of die hard three except in mumbai yeah and without bruce willis or sam jackson exactly um 
I really love the opening, like how they set it up, where it's just this giant wide shot of an empty, like uh, of an empty, um, the place where they have boats. What? What are you talking? Oh, a harbor? A harbor. Thank you. Jesus Christ. (laughs) It's a a wide shot of an empty harbor. Of an empty place they keep boats. Yeah. Yes. And he's just kind of sitting there looking out into the open. And just reminiscing, I, I thought that was like a nice way to start off this film, which was completely atypical of the rest of the film, which kind of feels more standard issue action movie. And this kind of sets it up as something completely different. Yeah, it's, I don't really know what to say about this movie. It's, uh... It's a, it's a perfectly decent action thriller. Yeah, I think it hits of all the, the films beats. we watched, the last eight films we watched, this is the weakest, but that doesn't mean it's bad. It's still pretty good. I mean, it's a fun time at the movies. Mm-hmm. It's like, it hits all the beats, um... It's, Although the it, twist is weird, yeah. The, 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 I'm just gonna spoil the twist. If you want to watch the movie, just pause this and watch it. Uh, it's it's fine. It's a fine movie. It'll spend you an hour and forty five minutes. So yeah. Um. Basically, the twist is that the person who has been planning all these things, who is planning the bombings, they think that he's trying to get a bunch of terrorists out of prison, but actually he just wanted them killed because he was really impacted by the 2006 Mumbai train train bombing. Which, for those who aren't aware, was a set of bombings that happened in India uh, that 209 people were killed in and over 700 people were injured. Uh, so, very big terrorist attack. Um, is actually a... Uh, do you follow Lindsay Ellis on YouTube? I do not. I should, but I don't. Uh, she has a really good video, actually, on uh, 9-11 films. And it's interesting because a lot of... Um, what do you call it? A lot of Indian films will use 9-11 as a stand-in for the Mumbai train, bo- train bombings. Interesting. Uh, like as a way to express their feelings about that without having to talk about that so quick after it happened. This is the only film that I know of that actually directly talk. Obviously, I'm not an expert in Indian film, but this is the only movie that I've seen or heard about that talks directly about those. And the, basically the point of it is that this, a common man, as he is called, he's just like a regular guy who you never even learn his name. And they make a point of that, that you never learn his name. He just wants the police to do something more he feels helpless and he feels like this is the only way he has to not let that happen again yeah and the last maybe 20 minutes of this movie is him monologuing about this exact thing and like i don't think this movie lands the plane the twist yeah. happens um uh nasir uh, nasir rudin shah monologues for like 20 minutes he leaves and the movie ends and the, uh-huh. the one of the twists is there was never any other bombs. It was just a ploy nope. to get these uh, other terrorists killed. It's uh, it's it, a weird message. It's a weird message, and it's in a shell, which is basically an okay action. Yeah, like there's nothing remarkable about this movie. It moves at a pretty lithe pace, but beyond that, there's nothing really remarkable about it, other than the weird track it takes in the last 25 minutes. Do you want to know my theory for why this movie ended up on the 250? Please do. So I think the reason that a lot of uh, the Indian films that are on the 250 ended up there is because obviously there's a sizable population in India and they use IMDb as well. So um, basically like some of the most popular Indian films end up on the 250 just kind of like by stats, uh, by having people to vote for it. And I think this film by directly discussing the Mumbai bombings is kind of like how when... Like, after 9-11, when we had the first films about 9-11, it took, like, a decade before people were willing to say, oh, those films kind of sucked. You know what I mean? Like, because it addresses something so tragic, and it seems like it should be important, that it ends up um, getting more than it deserves in terms of credit, I'd say. If that makes sense. 
That's fair. I mean, it's not super high on the list either. It's like barely in at 230. Yeah, and that's why I think like it just like kind of pushed in there by number of, uh, what do you call it? By number of votes, not necessarily because it's a great movie. Yeah, so like, like, like say 200,000 people putting it at like a 7 out of 10. Yeah. Um, which kind of makes the top 100 placement of Three Idiots even more like kind of mind-boggling to me (laughs) not that it was a bad movie but that is like a movie that is solidly entrenched in the top hundred yeah and it's another movie that's like 10 years old to be fair i think that's a much better movie and i would agree (laughs) and i I think it's it's a movie that is slightly more tuned to the audience of imdb like i think even Uh, if you don't live in india even if you aren't part of an indian engineering school most of the people who use imdb regularly like the power users people who are actually putting movies into these lists um are going to be people in college going to be people who are generally receiving some kind of higher education are white for the most part at least from america sure and it's a relatable thing whereas this movie i think is very culturally specific and i don't mean that negatively obviously it's just that for our american eyes it's hard to see like what's what's the thing here because the the action thriller i feel is a concept that like you know that it exports very well and I think I don't know. I, I it may be just because I'm. This is not like I, I, I'm missing some kind of cultural context. But at the at the end of the day, all I see is an okay like police. Threat. I mean, I agree, but I mean, there must be something else there that we're not seeing because I mean, it was a sleeper hit. People seem to love this movie. At least some people seem to love this movie. And there's something that is there that are affecting. People. Yeah, and I'm I, trying. To... I just don't quite see what it is. I think that maybe it's part of it's a twist. I think twists are. If you got a twist in your movie, you're a lot more likely to get on that 250. Like, what would the equivalent, what would, like, another movie like this be that's on the bracket? On the bracket? Nothing. Yeah. Or or or, some, or what would be, like, an equivalent movie? I mean, it's, it's Die Hard, but Die Hard is such a better movie. Is Die Hard 3 a better movie than this? I, I, I like Die Hard 3 more than this movie, yes. Okay. I haven't seen Die Hard 3. But, I mean, like, even the original Die Hard, the original Die Hard is on the 250, and... Well, that, because that's when that movie fucking rules, and... It's a fucking masterpiece, and I mean, here's here's the thing. It's like I had mentioned before. This movie does nothing exception does nothing exceptionally. It does nothing to rise above just being okay. Like the characters, sure. The movie looks fine. The music is okay. It's I I I I'm starting to buy into your theory that it's kind of the the the, the window dressing of the subject matter and like the cultural frame around it just doesn't carry the weight that it would with an Indian audience. Yeah, I mean, I think that window dressing can do a lot for a movie sometimes, and we're making it sound like it's a bad movie. It's not. It's, it's a, not. It's, I think it's, I enjoyed it's it. Okay. I enjoyed watching it, but at the same time, okay. I I wouldn't watch it again. Probably not. But if it was on, I'd probably watch it. So we still got ten minutes to talk about Spirited Away. So uh, oh, I want to start with saying this is the first time I really got Spirited Away. I've seen the movie three times total. The first time I was probably in high school. Second time was actually last year. I saw it in theaters during the. They did a brief re-release of it. Uh, and I saw it both those times with subtitles, and this time I saw it dubbed just because I wanted to be lazy and have to read the entire time. I want to say the dub's actually very good. Uh, Studio Ghibli generally gets pretty good dubs. Sure. But this is the first time it ever clicked with me. Um, I think I, I, think I have a similar uh, track record with Spirited Away because when I first saw it, I acknowledged that it was a beautiful piece of craft. It looked gorgeous. It moved along very nicely. It was... Uh, fantastical in the way that uh, that I appreciate from Hayao Miyazaki, and that was the first couple of times. And this time, something turned where I was more 
emotionally attuned to it. Yeah, I think if, if speaking for myself, the reason that it didn't work for me the first couple of times is that it's a, it doesn't function how most movies function emotionally. A lot of things happen that just kind of happen and don't like it's hard to track exactly where it is. There's no clear emotional arc to it. And the ending of the film is almost unsatisfying. But then this like this time watching it, I realize that's kind of the point of it is to be I a thought- little bit unsatisfying. And the point, of, or at least for me, the point of it and what made it really like powerful was um, realizing that what I saw in it, at least, is that it's this movie about growing up. It's a movie about childhood. And sure. you she leaves behind um, <clears throat> the protagonist, uh, leaves behind this magical Chihiro, Chihiro uh, or Sen, leaves behind Orson. this magical world and it feels bittersweet and kind of painful but she has to and there's never going to be a full resolution for everything that happened there and her childhood's just gonna go and there's certain things that happen there that aren't coming with her yeah there's the there's the carrot they dangle where uh what's that what's the young lad's name haku haku there's that there's there's that carrot they dangle where it's like oh one day i'll leave as well and it's like i'm not convinced you're leaving but yeah and it almost seems like that's the first time i watched it i was expecting a romantic turn from that and it never happens i think to the movie's credit that never happens it's a friendship and it's a friendship that she realizes i think in the end and what's sad about the ending and that she realizes that she can't take these friends with her yeah and another interesting thing about this movie that kind of issues convention and this particular strain of movie is that our on our on tech our antagonist is a bit more of a tweener than a full-on full-fledged bad guy yeah, yeah. Like, uh, fuck, what's her name? Yubaba. Uh, Yubaba. Yubaba is the antagonist, but isn't, like, she's not like Cruella de Vil or anything. She's, like, multifaceted. She has a little literal doppelganger who shows up at the 11th, not at the 11th hour, but, like, sort of later on. And, she, like, she just comes off as someone who, like, oh, man, I gotta do this. I gotta run this fucking hotel. And all these fucking people asking me for work. And God damn it. And everything's a whole to do but she's not she's not she's evil she's all she's got all the markers of it she's got like the giant witch nose and the and the the welt on the forehead and has all the signifiers of evil but is not evil rude as shit and maybe not the best employer but not evil i mean that's one of the strengths of every i think miyazaki film or at least the ones that like really matter and that uh that i saw in um Song of the Sea, which is an anime movie that came out in 2013, 2014, something like that. Uh-huh. And that their antagonists aren't really antagonists. They're they're stopping the hero from getting what they want, but they're not doing it because they hate the hero. They're not doing it because they have evil intentions. They're just doing sure. it because this is something they do where it's uh there's a lot more complicated feelings there. And yeah, it makes it so oh, like ahead. by the end she uh Chihiro calls Yubaba Granny as she's leaving, like uh-huh. a, like a term of endearment, even though yep. she was the villain the whole movie. And she almost like the last thing she does to her that um, Yubaba does to Chihiro is do this shitty like test where she's like, which of these pigs is the are your parents? And if you don't it's answer like, right, you have to live here forever. Yeah, it's like three card Monty, except it's 12 pig Monty. Yeah. Um, and the actual red card's not even in there at all. But yeah. Yeah, this was the first, like I said, this is the first time that that, I finally kind of understood what it was going for, and I finally felt it a lot more. I think also what I got this time is that the 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 evolution in Chihiro's character was felt more, felt more foregrounded, because I, 
the first couple of times uh, I watched this film, I think I neglected to put uh, adequate weight in how she comported herself in the car ride to the tunnel. Mm-hmm. And this, she basically spends two acts, like, basically getting a personality, like, building her personality. And, like, I mean, I don't want to say developing a work ethic, but developing a, a, a sense of self and a, sef- a sense of purpose and a sense of herself as a person who exists in the world and not as necessarily someone who's a dependent. Yeah, and I think that that also goes along with the fact that in the car, she's complaining about how she's leaving her friends. And then the final part of the movie is her leaving her friends. And just like, uh, it's such a subtle way to like show that growth. Like she doesn't come out and say, now I'm confident and I'm a self-possessed person. and I don't feel the need to like feel awful about this. But the fact that she is able to do it and do it in a a graceful way says a lot about what she she learned when she was in the bathhouse. Oh man, what a good fucking movie, Michelle. Yeah, like, and I, honestly, going back, like when when I started watching this for the podcast, I didn't think I would be as high on it. I thought that it would be like it was before. Where I was like, this is a very good movie, but I don't really feel anything from it, and I don't kind of get what other people are seeing in it. And I think now I get it. Yeah, I think this went from like four stars as like you know beautiful piece of sort of uh, fairy tale craft to like full on masterpiece deserving of every laurel it's gotten. So that's a long way of saying that this is going to beat out a Wednesday. Yeah, sorry, a Wednesday. You uh, you did your best. I would like to cite just real quick, if people are interested, um, a YouTuber named Big Joel did a, uh, a video. Shout out to Big Joel. Uh, did a video called, uh, it's something like um, Ambivalence in Miyazaki's films or something like that. If you look up Ambivalence Miyazaki, he did a really good video essay about a lot of the things we're talking about here. So. All right. So that's that. Yeah, so next round so, it's gonna be Spirited Away versus um The Hunt. Yes, the Hunt. That's a weird matchup. Oh boy. Yeah, yeah. I think we'll. The, the, there's a weird matchup here, and there will pl- be plenty of more, plenty more weird matchups as we start filling in this bracket piece by piece. Next time, though, uh, let me peek ahead at what we're going to be dealing with next time. So for our, our next episode, which will be in two weeks, uh, we will be taking a look at. Uh, Once Upon a Time in America versus In the Name of the Father, and Paths of Glory versus The Passion of Joan of Arc. Holy moly. That's a matchup. Oh, boy. Oh, man. That's... Uh, that, uh, then if we start peeking ahead, we... Oh, oh, I'm going to call this right now because this is really interesting. Uh, the episode after that, which is going to be episode eight... We're doing uh, two things that's re- that are really good. Oh God, we're yeah, doing, I, just, I just saw what you're about to say, and it's re- that's ridiculous. We're doing we're doing we're doing uh, Miyazaki again. We're going to do Raging Bull versus Howl's Moving Castle, and get a load of this: Schindler's List versus Winter Light, our first wild card matchup against Schindler's goddamn list. So it's up to the six seed. Basically, my job next not, in episode eight is to convince Derek to throw Schindler's List under the bus, which is not something I'm going to feel good about, but it's <laughs> <laughs> something that's going to have to happen. Oh, man. But no, for next time, we will be taking a look at Once Upon a Time in America versus In the Name of the Father and Pass of Glory versus Passion Mark. It's going to be a wild ride. Yeah. Um, until next time, where people find you, Derek? They can find me on Twitter at Derek underscore G. And... Um, Yes. Copy. And um, I'm on there at Space Jam Fan, and the podcast is at Middlebrow Pod. And if you want to uh, send us an email because 
you are a giant a Wednesday stand. And- like seriously, if you happen to have some insight into why a Wednesday is this high up on the list and why people seem to like it so much, I would actually love to hear it. Yes, uh, same. Send that to uh, middlebrownmadness at gmail.com. That's our very public email address. And I think that does it. Yeah, that does it for today. Three, hour- three hours of recording later. Oh, uh, man. I still hate myself for not being the person who presses the record button. Well, Derek, I have some advice for you. Are you ready? Yeah. Have movies be jolly. Oh, man. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night.